our topic, Caleb, the example of faithfulness. We're going to look at Caleb, and a lot of what I say, most of what I say is going to apply to uh, Joshua as well. I'm going to read Numbers, and our text is in 14, but i got to start at 13. And we're going to start with the bad report from the, there were 12 who spied out the land, and here's the report, part of the report of the 10 that were bad. Uh, 1328, nevertheless, the people who dwell in the cities are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, <coughs> we just saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites and Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. The Canaanites dwell by the sea along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. <clears throat> and they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in the land of, the, of this land are men of great stature. There we saw giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Chapter 14. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of all the children of Israel. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel, and then of course there's an inner, uh, the Lord, an interaction between the Lord and Moses. Now skip to verse 24. <clears throat> we'll start at verse 23. They surely shall not see the land of which I swore to the fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him, and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land where he went, and his descendants shall inherit it. And then you read later in the book of Joshua, after 45 years, at the age of 85 years old, he goes in, he conquers, he possesses the land, a good land, and his children take possession. In our text, Caleb is praised by God for his radically different approach to God's promises and requirements regarding taking possession of the land of Canaan. He, along with Joshua, had a different spirit in him and way of thinking that fully followed God. Today we need to contrast Caleb's spirit with the spirit of unbelieving Israel. 
Before we do so, however, let us look at Caleb, who he was, and the historical circumstances that brought about Yahweh's praise and reward of Caleb. The name Caleb, Hebrew, Caleb, means dog. It could refer to one who has canine qualities, the rabid one, the one who bites and snarls. In Canaan, it was used as a term for a slave. The Canaanite governors who paid tribute to Pharaoh are called Pharaoh's dogs. Now, the dog was an unclean animal. Therefore, the Jews would never name a son Caleb. Now, the older commentaries, like Matthew Henry, say that it can also mean uh, someone of heart, someone sincere, someone who heartily follows. Um, the modern ones don't say that. But what does a dog do? A dog does faithfully follow its master. Ancient Jewish writers have tried to put a positive spin on this name, saying it was a name of affection. It stresses the quality of faithfulness, like that of a dog, to his master. Caleb's parents, who were not Jews, obviously believed it was a positive name. It is fitting in that Caleb was very faithful to, do to God. What do dogs do? They follow their masters faithfully through thick and thin. And Caleb believed and followed God no matter what. So it's a fitting name, Caleb. Now Caleb was a Kenizzite. This was a tribe of Kenaz, one of the chieftains of Edom. He was not a Jew. <coughs> and the Edomites, of course, became enemies of Israel. Interestingly, Caleb's younger brother is named Kenaz. And he was faithful as well. The promised land did not belong to the children of Kenaz. But... Caleb joined himself to Israel by faith and became a part of the tribe of Judah. So even in the Old Testament, faith was far more important than blood or heritage. And that's the problem Jesus runs into in his day, that, oh, I'm a Jew. And God has to save me because I'm a Jew. No, do you have faith? That's the question. The Jews without faith died in the wilderness. But Caleb, a non-Jew, entered the land and was greatly blessed by God. Caleb was one of the twelve spies who sent, was sent out by Moses <clears throat> into the promised land to spy it out. And these men are identified in Numbers 13.3 as heads of the children of Israel. These men were leaders within their respective tribes. Caleb represented the tribe of Judah. So the spies aren't just men arbitrarily selected. These were leaders. Joshua was sent by Moses and represented the Levites. The fact that Caleb was a leader in Judah indicates that his non-Jewish blood was not considered an impediment to leadership in Israel. So, once again, contrary to dispensationalism, the issue was faith. And, you know, I was a dispensationalist back in the day. I was a Baptist dispensationalist. And uh, according to them, God has two separate peoples, Israel and Christians. No, no, no. God has one people, Christians, which you enter by believing in Christ. You have faith. You can be a Jewish Christian or a Gentile Christian, but there's one church, one people of God. The people over in Israel who call themselves Jews, who persecute Christians, are not God's people. Now, God may have promises for them in the future, a mass conversion, but currently they're the enemies of God. They're not God's people. <clears throat> These men spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rabah, excuse me, Rahab. 
From the far south to the north, they observed the strength of people living there and great agricultural prosperity of the land. They spent a whole month spying out the land. It took a month. The land flows with milk and honey, and it produces great crops, great grapes, figs, wheat, barley. And then the unbelief of the ten spies, the great faith of Caleb is noted in Numbers uh, 1328 to 1410. I already read a lot of this, so I'll, I'll skip some of this. Then Caleb cried to the people before Moses said, let us go up at once, take possession. And then I'll, I'll go back to uh, chapter 4. So all the people lifted up their voices and cried, and the Lord, the people wept that night, and the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation and said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, if only we had died in the wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword? And our wives and children should become victims. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? And then we jump down to his response. They spoke to the congregation of Israel, saying, The land we possess, despite it, is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord brings us, delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give us a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the land of the, peop the people of the land, for they are our bread, our protection is departed, their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation wanted to stone them with stones. The ten spies who did not believe that Israel could conquer the land looked at their task humanistically. Not from the perspective of faith. They ignored Yahweh and his power which was exhibited boldly in Egypt, as well as his precious promises, <clears throat> while they focused on the strength and power of the heathen living in the land. They just watched God deliver them from Egypt. They had all been witnesses of it. Egypt was more powerful than the seven Canaanite nations, than the seven nations, the seven pagan nations, I should say. They had walled cities, Great and mighty warriors and even giants, the descendants of Anak. By the way, this has all been verified, almost all of this has been verified by archaeology. Because they ignored God's word and analyzed the situation from a humanistic, empirical perspective, they concluded that taking the land was impossible. Okay, what were they doing? They were judging by sight, not by faith. They desired to go back to Egypt and were angry with God for bringing them into the wilderness. Their unbelief not only caused them to refuse to obey God, but it affected their concept of God itself. They believed that Yahweh was powerless to save. And they believed that God was not a loving, caring, merciful God, but a malevolent God who sought to destroy them. We should have stayed in Egypt. God brought us out here to die. But Joshua and Caleb stood up for God and encouraged the people to believe God's word and obey him. And then, of course, all the congregation wanted to stone them to death. Okay, they, they believed they were giving false testimony and they should be executed. They not only refused to believe God, but they did not want to hear the word of God and the call to repentance. The people also grumbled against God's appointed leaders. Moses and Aaron. And the text indicates and emphasizes that the whole congregation 
was involved in this rebellion. All the congregation, verse 1. All the children of Israel, verse 2. The whole congregation, verse 2. The people were angry and raised their voices. And they also became sorrowful. They wept. They complained. They strongly opposed God's plan and God's leadership. And then they concluded that it would be better to die in the desert than to obey God's plan and his commands. So they made up their own plan. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's choose a new leader. Let's reject Moses. Let's choose our own leader. Let's go back to Egypt. They would totally forsake God's word and God's appointed leadership and choose their own. So unbelief not only rejects God's words and commands, but also expresses hatred and contempt for those who speak the truth and encourage obedience to God. That's why the Pharisees and the scribes hated Christ. And it's why when people have itching ears and you read about the prophet, the true prophets in the Old Testament, they were not popular. They were hated by the people. And Jeremiah is thrown in a pit and Isaiah is despised. They don't want to hear the truth. They have itching ears. They want to hear a pleasing message that pleases them. In this explicit rebellion against God, we see a pattern of unbelief and rebellion that will occur over and over again until Israel is destroyed in AD 70. When men reject God's truth, they place a form of humanism in its place that is hostile to God's word and that would like to kill the true prophets of God. And that's a sad reality. We recognize that these unbelieving, rebellious people did not understand or see their unbelief and rebellion. They thought they were perfectly fine. They were in a state of blindness, spiritual blindness, and self-deception. When Joshua and Caleb accused the whole congregation of rebelling against Yahweh, they reject that accusation as false and propose to exact the appropriate penalty for a false witness in such a case which would be the death penalty. They wanted to stone him with stones. So let us un uh, review this biblical, this unbiblical response. Number one, they ignored God's word and, and command and focused all their attention on magnifying the power of the opposition. This unbelief was exceptionally irrational in that God had just used his miraculous power to free the Israelites from the Egyptian empire which was much stronger than any of these nations in Canaan. God had delivered Israel without them lifting a finger to fight the Egyptians. They didn't have to fight their way out. God parted the sea. They walked across the sea and he closed up the sea, killing Pharaoh and all, his, all of his armies were drowned. They simply had to trust in the shed blood of the sacrificial lamb without spot or blemish. Their deliverance out of the house of bondage corresponds or serves as a type of our deliverance from sin and guilt by Jesus Christ. <clears throat> if they could not really trust and look back at their salvation from Egypt, they would not have the faith to conquer the promised land. Number two, they refused to obey God because they believed God's command was impossible, unreasonable, and would fail. 
The passage is very clear cut. This is not hard stuff. They didn't believe. Number three. They believed that God's plan of salvation and conquest was evil. You say, why, why do unbelievers, why are they so hostile to Jesus Christ? Why do they hate God so much? Why do, why do atheists mock God and make fun of Christianity? Because they hate God. There is no neutrality. If you don't believe, if you disbelieve, if you reject the truth, you have to embrace the darkness. You have to embrace that which is false. You have to embrace a satanic worldview, and that's precisely what they do. They attributed evil, evil motives to God's commands and totally rejected God's will. Their unbelief revealed an emphatic rejection of Yahweh, the only true and living God. And then three. They replaced God's plan with their own plan, which was to choose new leadership and return to Egypt. So unbelief is not only a rejection of God and his word, which is the truth, but it always involves a return to the evil world system. Once again, there can be no neutrality. It's not like, well, you know, I'm not convinced of the Bible. I, you know, I'm not sure Jesus is a groovy guy. Uh, I'll just be neutral about it. No, there is no neutrality. It's Christ or Satan. That's just the way reality is. There is no neutrality. The rebellion was exceptionally wicked in that they preferred the slavery of Egypt over freedom and dominion under God. They'd rather be slaves than take dominion. They'd rather be slaves than be responsible. So unbelief is never a neutral act. It is a rejection of God who is love, light, and truth for Satan, the world, and sin. It's never a neutral act to not believe. Unbelief is evil. And then four. He rejected God's leadership, Moses and Aaron, and wanted to put death God's faithful witnesses, Caleb and Joshua. So you say, why did the Roman Catholic Church, why did they persecute the Protestants who simply wanted to follow the Bible? And they, they wanted to print Bibles and give everybody a Bible and encourage Bible reading and encourage godliness and encourage obeying Scripture strictly because they were unbelievers. Roman Catholicism is a satanic false form. It's a cult. It has more in common with a cult than biblical Christianity. Are there people who don't follow all the doctrines of Rome that may be Christians? Of, of course. Calvin said there, as to the church, as to... Well-being, the church is a false church, but uh, as to being, there are probably Christians there. I met, a, I met a nun who was an Augustinian nun when I was an Arminian street preacher, and she knew the gospel better than I did. So yeah, there can be Christians there, but their doctrine, the Council of Trent, is satanic to the core. The result of this unbelief and disobedience was that they could not enter the promised land. The land of milk and honey, abundant blessings, and rest... And they could not go back to Egypt because not, God would not give a victory to Egypt. If they had gone back to Egypt, that would have looked very bad. So they all died in the wilderness. In Numbers uh, 14, 12 to 23, we read, Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now ten times, and have not heeded my voice, 
They certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. So these people, God, it took over 40 years for all these people to die off. And at this time, Joshua, uh, Caleb is 40 years old. And then you read the first chapter of the book of Joshua, and Caleb is now 85 years old, and he's going into the land, and he's fighting in battle at the age of 85 years old. So let's look now, that's the context. Let's look now at Caleb's faithfulness. With the example of Israel's unbelief and wicked fruit it produced in, in their minds, let us now contrast that with the example of Caleb's faith, faithfulness, and reward. And I didn't get to the reward today. I just had too much material. But he, he's rewarded abundantly for this, getting choice land and his children being leaders and so forth. So keep in mind also that most of what I say will also applies to Joshua, although the text will focus on Caleb. <clears throat> when the spies were spending, spreading a bad report and were encouraging unbelief, Caleb silenced the people and he spoke up for the success of God's mission in verse 30. Joshua will side with Caleb against the people when they start grumbling, when they're grumbling against, first they're grumbling against Moses and that's going to shift to a grumbling against Yahweh in Numbers 14.6. And when that starts, Caleb, Joshua speaks up too and they both start speaking up. Because it's one thing to attack God's messenger. It's one, another thing to attack God himself. Both are wicked, but attacking God himself is especially wicked. So let's look at first at the actions of Caleb. Number one, Caleb goes against virtually the whole congregation of Israel. The whole congregation, except for Moses and Aaron and Joshua. Numbers 13.30, let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. He tells everyone, we should simply obey God. Let's go. He had complete confidence in God's power and promise. He silenced the complainers and the spokesmen of unbelief, and he spoke the truth. Some think that he spoke before Joshua, who had a position of authority, because they could not accuse him of already being on Moses' side. That's just speculation. In any case, when the people were speaking unbelief and complaining against God's plan, he silenced their sinful speech and he spoke the necessary encouragement. Number two. The next arguments include, of course, both Caleb and Joshua. They who first tore their clothes in horror and mourning at the congregation's words against Yahweh and Moses. You have to understand the wickedness of attributing evil motives to God. When these atheists, they write books, and of course they lump Yahweh, the true and living God, in with the uh, God of Islam and the God of the cults and Roman Catholicism and all these false religions that have a completely perverse, distort Islam is a completely satanic, perverse religion that involves, you know, their way of spreading the kingdom is through the sword and murdering innocent women and children. That's not Christ's way. Christ's way is the sword of the Spirit, the word of the God. You witness to people. If they don't reject it, you don't get to cut their heads off. So they do that. But when these evil atheists mock the truth, and they mock the true God of the Bible, uh, the damnation they heap upon themselves is uh, fully just. Now, Caleb's argument is based on the promises of covenant blessings in the law. 
Numbers 14.8. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. The point here is obvious. If we believe the word of God and have confidence in his promises and therefore live in obedience to it, Yahweh shall delight in us. He will bestow upon us covenant blessings. You have to understand that the whole Old Testament, you have to, the way to interpret it, especially the prophets, is in terms of the law, the Torah. And you have, the, of course, the ethical standard, but you also have the covenant blessings for obedience and the covenant curses for disobedience. If the rewards for obedience to the law found in Leviticus 26, uh, in them we find these words. But keep in mind there's going to be curses and blessings also noted in Deuteronomy 28. But that's written right before they go into the promised land over 40 years later. But Leviticus 26 has already been written. Or spoken at least. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts, and the sword will not go through your land. You will chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five, and this is if they obey the law. This is if they're covenantally faithful. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put to, te put to flight ten thousand. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. For I will look upon you favorably, and I will make you fruitful, and multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. That's verses six to nine. Covenant blessings. So you have to understand the message of the Bible isn't simply believe the gospel and go out and do whatever you want. You can be a carnal Christian. No, the message of the Bible is believe the gospel, pick up your cross and follow Christ. Be obedient. Live in obedience to me. Follow me. Invasions will be eliminated. And the Israelites will easily destroy their enemies, no matter how powerful they are, and no matter how much they outnumber the Israelites. Now, in God's providence, of course, the scripture reading today, Isaiah 38, Hezekiah, how was, how were the, they brought an army down, a huge Assyrian army. I think it was 180,000 men, armed to the teeth, with much better weapons than Israel. And God kills them all with one angel during the night. God delivers his people. And of course, Hezekiah repented and prayed and fasted, and that's, that all came to pass. If the Israelites trust in God and are covenantly faithful, they shall have victory over their enemies. This promise is part of the covenant law. If the Israelites do not believe God and thus disobey him, their negativity, disbelief, and murmuring becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of defeat. Oh, we can't win. There's no point in trying. I just, you know, these promises of God, we have to reinterpret those. We have to spiritualize those so they don't mean anything. We can't have victory. That's basically what they do. These Israelites could not enter the promised land because the Lord did not delight in them. They were covenant breakers. They would not have been able to achieve a victory while they were living in such a scandalous sin. By their ingratitude, their rebellion, and blasphemous concept of God, they're accusing God of having evil motives and wanting to destroy them the whole time. They guaranteed that they could not defeat their enemies. Unbelief, disobedience, murmuring, 
complaining. Number three, and we're including Joshua in this as well, Caleb and Joshua. Their statement of faith in God's promises is followed by a call to repentance. Uh, Numbers 14.9, only do not rebel against God, the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. <clears throat> the statement, do not rebel, means do not give up obedience to God's authority. To his commands. Do not withdraw from your covenant obligation to submit to Yahweh. God said, you're going to go into the land, you're going to defeat the, the seven pagan nations. And they're saying, no, we're not. That's rebellion. That is sin. Rebelling against God involves the choice to ignore and reject what he requires in order to replace it with our own will and our own desires. The path to victory over the heathen in the land is by faith and obedience. If the congregation of the Lord is faithful, they have absolutely no reason to fear the seven heathen nations before them. Caleb and Joshua's commands remind us of God's call for Judah to repent in Isaiah 1, 19-20. Like I said, this is a pattern. It's a pattern. Disobedience leads to, to defeat. Unbelief leads to defeat. Isaiah 1, 19-20. If you are willing and obedient... You shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So the Lord places before the people of Judah, and this is the Isaiah passage, the choice between, uh, Israel's already destroyed in 722 by the Assyrians, the choice between blessing and curse. The choice which has been set before it under Moses in Leviticus 28. And then repeated again in more detail in Deuteronomy 28. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. The blessings and the curses. If the people believe God and thus are willing to obey him and repent, they will easily conquer the heathen and take possession. The trusting in Christ and submitting to him as Lord is necessary for spiritual blessings and the economic blessings that attend following God's moral law. Okay, this isn't being preached, to, you know, theonomists talk about this, but this isn't being preached today. What are, we, what are we evangelicals obsessed with? Well, Joel Olstein and this prosperity gospel. Have brighter, have a nice car, have a better house, have whiter teeth. If you have the power of positive thinking and you, you name it and claim it. When God says, believe my word, obey my law, live a sanctified godly life, and you'll be blessed. Does it mean you're all going to be rich? Of course not. But you will be blessed. The Puritan work ethic. Why were the Puritans? Why was Northern Europe so much more prosperous than the Roman Catholic areas of Italy and Spain? Why? Because they believed the Bible and they followed the Bible. That's why. In Deuteronomy 8, 19-18, Moses says to those who are about to enter the land, And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth, that He may establish His covenant which He swore to your fathers, as it is this day. <clears throat> then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify you against this day that you will perish. Faith and obedience. 
in Deuteronomy, as you know, is simply a restatement of the covenant to the new generation right before they go into the promised land. Moses is super old. He's about to die. Joshua is going to take over. Caleb and Joshua's commands are followed by a reason. Why obedience is wise and reasonable. 14.9, Numbers 14.9b. For they are our bread. Their protection is departed from them. And the Lord is with us. The statement they are our bread in Hebrew means literally, uh, we will swallow them up. We're going to swallow them up. Israel, if they believe and obey, will defeat and destroy the inhabitants of Canaan as easily as if they're eating a piece of bread. Why? These people are under God's judgment. Leviticus 18 tells you why. I've decided, and God gave them 400 years to repent. They didn't repent, they got worse. The people are under God's judgment. They have been placed under the ban, the cherim principle. This means they have been set aside by God for destruction. And the Lord has chosen Israel to destroy them for their idolatry, gross sexual immorality, homosexuality was rampant, fornication, adultery, bestiality, and ritual bestiality in their rituals, their violence, their wicked law order, idolatry. So what's the lesson here? Nothing can destroy the church's victory and prosperity except her own unbelief and rebellion against God. That's, your, that's the church's biggest enemy. Unbelief and disobedience. If the church is faithful and has faith and they obey, they don't have to worry. So I tell people, don't get all upset about all the crazy stuff going on right now. We're post-millennialists. Yeah, things might be really bad for the next 100 years, maybe 200 years, but Christ will have victory over the nations. There's no question about it. And you look at the birthing trends, it's pretty shocking. God is faithful and loyal to his people, and he only departs from them because they drive him away by their sin and rebellion. Okay, so there's all the context. Now let's look at God's praise of Caleb. There is a dramatic exception to God's verdict of judgment against Israel, and this is seen in Numbers 14.24. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it. And I didn't have time to go into the reward, but you read, you know, later today, read Joshua chapter one. He's 85 years old. 45 years later, he goes in the land. He's a leader. He's a fighter. He's a warrior. And he conquers. And he inherits this wonderful piece of land. He's a leader. And his children are... Sunrise leader. Only Caleb is mentioned here, while both Caleb and Joshua, the son of Nun, are discussed in verse 30. Scripture will have a lot of things to say about Joshua later on, so the focus here is on Caleb. Joshua, as you know, becomes the leader after Moses dies. We can safely assume that the praise given to Caleb also applies to Joshua. Well, there are a number of things to note regarding God's assessment of Caleb. First, he is praised for having a different spirit than the people of Israel. He has a different starting point in his mind that affected his consideration of reality. 
He had a completely different way of thinking. He had a completely different way of looking at factuality. He had a completely different philosophy, a completely different way of looking at everything around him. He looked at behavior and the circumstances around him through the lens of faith in God's word. If God told him to go up against the seven pagan nations, he was happy to go immediately because he trusted in God's promises. He trusted in the word of God. He wasn't afraid. If God promised victory over these nations, then he believed in that victory and was ready to go to work immediately. The Israelites started from a position of unbelief and human autonomy. They looked at reality from a pragmatic, empirical perspective. They assumed that God's word, promises, and plan was untrustworthy. And what have Christians done? We'll talk a little bit about this later. But what have Christians done after, after Darwin and secular humanism kind of took over things in the late 1800s and then World War I and communism and all these terrible things happened? The optimism. The optimism went away. And what did Christians do? We need to be faithful. We need to apply scripture to society. We need to apply scripture to culture. We need to apply scripture to God, uh, God's law to society. They went inward and became pietists. And they developed eschatologies of defeat. They didn't have faith. They didn't believe in God's promises. The Israelites assumed that God's word, promises, and plan were untrustworthy. It must be placed in the dock of human reason and analyzed by finite, sinful, faithless humans to see whether it should be trusted and obeyed or not. The Israelite will say, I, I will obey here, but I am unwilling to obey there. Now, I didn't talk about modernists or liberals because they're so obviously satanic and unscriptural. But what do they say when they talk about homosexuality? Oh, that can't mean what it says. Because we believe homos are wonderful, loving people. Nonsense. They twist scripture to justify their unbelief and their disobedience. Such thinking is very arrogant. And it's really kind of blasphemous when you think about it. Such people have the mindset and attitude which says to self, I really know this situation better than God does. I'm wiser than God. My plan is better than God's. I'll choose better leadership than God's. I have a much better plan for the world than God's plan. I can develop a better philosophy of life. I can develop a better system of ethics than God. Caleb, however, had a different spirit. And this could be seen in the fruit of his life. He followed Yahweh fully. The statement in Hebrew means literally, he went after me fully or wholly. We find the statement again in Deuteronomy 1, 35-36. Surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see that good land, of which I swore to give to your fathers. Except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it. And to him and his children I am giving the land on which he walked, because he wholly followed the Lord. And of course, this is forty years. This is over forty years later. It's forty-five years later. And then in Joshua fourteen, seven and nine, Caleb says, "I was forty years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought back word to him as if it was in my heart." Nevertheless, <clears throat> my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. 
So Moses swore to me on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. What is he saying? He's saying, look, the word, the promise has been fulfilled. It has been fulfilled. And he was incredibly blessed because he believed and he followed through. He obeyed. The goal or endeavor of every professing Christian must be to fully or wholly follow the Lord. Our obedience to God's revealed will and service to our Lord Jesus Christ must be universal. Without departing to the right hand or to the left. And what does the covenant law say? Don't add to what I say. Don't make up your own ethics. Follow what I teach you. Don't detract from what I teach you. Obey me fully. Follow the whole law. Don't add to it. Don't detract from it. Caleb did not divide God's commandments into important and unimportant areas so he could violate areas in which his flesh was weak. He followed the Lord without picking and choosing what commands he wanted to obey. He did not look at God's moral commandments and say to himself that there were unessential areas that could be ignored. By way of application, let us look at how professing Christians today avoid following God fully. There are various heresies and errors that professing Christians use to avoid following Christ fully. First, I already mentioned this, but there's dispensationalism, which disregards the Old Testament moral laws by teaching that the whole Mosaic law, not simply the ceremonial laws, which the Bible teaches have been put away, or not simply laws that specifically are tied to the land of Israel, such as the method of taxation or borders or whatever, but all the moral law in the Old Testament has been abrogated. This view has also led to the carnal Christian heresy, which teaches that repentance is a Jewish doctrine and that obedience to Christian ethics is optional. You say, you've got to be kidding me. They really teach that? Yes, they do. I was a dispensationalist at one time. And of course, if you've ever seen the four spiritual laws, we call it the four spiritual flaws. At the end of the track, it says, you can accept Christ as your personal Savior, but you don't have to accept him as Lord. And We recommend making him the Lord of your life, but you don't have to. If one wants to make Jesus Lord and be a serious Christian, you can do that. But one can also not receive Jesus as Lord and live a sinful, worldly, pagan lifestyle and still be a Christian. That's taught today. And this teaching is what is called antinomianism, anti-lawism. It says that sanctification does not necessarily follow justification. It teaches that one can have saving faith without works or the fruits of faith which, of course, contradicts the book of James, chapter 2. The two major heresies in the history of Christianity are, of course, Roman Catholicism and the Federal Vision, which confounds sanctification with justification and merges the two. They're separate. You're justified solely by faith in Christ. He achieves salvation. You don't achieve anything. You're justified by his righteousness, not your own righteousness. We're not saved by the works of the law. But then the other heresy that's a major problem is antinomianism, or the idea that you can be justified, but you don't need to be sanctif sanctified. Well, you're not saved by your good works, so you might as well go out and sin all you want. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that, and the Westminster Standards are great on this. 
Justification is accompanied by all the other saving graces. If you're justified, you possess the Holy Spirit. If you're justified by Christ, you're united to Christ in his life, death, and resurrection, and you have to put to death sin in your life and live a godly life. And if you don't have the fruits of faith, James chapter 2, then it shows that your faith is dead. You don't have real faith to begin with. <coughs> such, an, such a doctrine explains why people in so many evangelical churches fornicate, get drunk, smoke pot, steal, commit adultery, and participate in unlawful divorces at almost the exact same level as the pagans and atheists around us. And I know, I was an evangelical. I went to a big, huge, charismatic megachurch when I was first a professing Christian. This is like 1975. And people were fornicating. People were getting drunk and getting stoned. And, and their whole attitude was, well, you know, I might, I might accept Jesus as Lord down the road, but I'm having a lot of fun fornicating. There was, a, there was a woman who sang in the choir, and she was living with a guy in an apartment across the street from the church. He, was, he went to the church, too, and they were having sex. They were living in sin. In fornication. They weren't married. The Jews in the wilderness said, let us go back to Egypt. While modern Christians say there is no need to leave Egypt. Or let us turn the church into Egypt. <clears throat> the whole prosperity movement where one is supposed to get rich and happy through positive confession or the power of positive thinking. It's nothing but crass American materialism. Jesus has turned into a pop psychologist. Instead of deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me, die to self, live the sacrificial life of godliness. The message is, confess that you're great. That you deserve a bigger car. You deserve a nicer house. You deserve fancier clothes. You deserve whiter teeth. Pick up your new car keys and be a good consumer. What is that but catering to the American materialistic consumer spirit? Such thinking is blasphemous and anti-Christian. Joel Osteen has the biggest church in the whole United States. And it's satanic to the core. Second, there is the teaching that people in society should not, or at least are not required, to follow God's law revealed in Scripture, but are really only required to follow natural law. And of course, you talk to ten different people, you get ten different definitions of natural law. <clears throat> or someone will say that, and this, I've heard this very commonly in Reform circles, well, only the Ten Commandments are moral law. They apply to us, the Ten Commandments, but there are no moral laws outside of the Ten Commandments. So for everything else, the specifics, the applications, we are dependent on natural law. The view, this view which is more popular than you would think, and I have a whole book, uh, I've written a whole book against it. Uh, the, the theology professor from Westminster West wrote a whole book in favor of this view uh, on natural law. De, uh, Van Brunen book is trash. And this is, this is the guy training OPC and PCA ministers. The which is more popular than you think gives people a very large area of human autonomy. For the Ten Commandments are only a summary of the moral law. They're not the whole moral law. They're a summary. Well, they represent the whole moral law, but they're a summary. 
This is the chief argument of Reformed churchmen against theonomy. And theonomy in its best and chief form, I'm not advocating the crazy stuff they say, or, you know, David Shelton and Ray Sutton, who's Anglo-Catholic, and all the crazy garbage, James Jordan, talking about its chief point, which agrees with people like Gillespie and Rutherford. Theonomy in its best and chief form says that nations who possess the gospel and divine revelation should base their civil laws and the penalties on the moral laws, including the moral case laws found in Scripture. And yes, that's what Rutherford believed. That's what Gillespie believed. Gillespie is explicit, very explicit. Well, people don't like that. So they say, well, we should follow natural law. And then what do they do? They ignore the law of God. Since these laws, of course, are given by God, and the Bible says that they are just, this position, the position of theonomy, is a no-brainer. It's obviously true. Yet it's rejected in reform circles today. It's obviously true. But people don't want to say that people who commit public open idolatry should be put to death in a Christian society. They don't want to say that. They don't want to say that people who are caught by two witnesses in the act of practicing homosexuality should be executed. They don't want to say that. But that's what the Bible teaches. That's what God says is right and just. And we should obey God rather than men. They do not want to follow God's law fully when it comes to civil laws. Moreover, since God's revealed law and what is called natural law both come from God, they teach the exact same moral principles. There's not two gods. There's not a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. They teach the same thing. People choose natural law because it is vague and it gives people more human autonomy. And that's the bottom line. Third, and I mentioned this earlier, professing Christians that develop unbiblical concepts of eschatology, that is the, the study of the, the final things, in order to avoid their responsibility to spiritually conquer whole nations. Whole nations! Not simply individuals here and there. In the Great Commission, the Church is commanded to disciple all nations with the word and sacraments. They are to teach whole nations to follow the whole counsel of God, including God's moral law. And Jesus promises victory by telling the church that he will be with them even to the end of the age. And the age there is not AD 70, the full preterist heresy. It's the end of the New Covenant era. If you believe in the full preterist heresy, which is totally ridiculous, then Christ is not with his church after AD 70. Think about how stupid that is. No, Christ is with us to the end of the, of the New Covenant era. This statement is a direct allusion to Joshua's promise to Israel right before their conquest of the promised land. Listen to what he says. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 1.9. Jesus is the Greek of Joshua. Christ was sending his apostles and his servants throughout history to set up his kingdom in this world. A kingdom that is to leaven planet earth, that is to cause kings and queens to bow the knee to Yahweh and the Lord Jesus Christ. His presence is the guarantee of ultimate victory. That's how it's used in the book of Joshua. And that's how it's used by Jesus. From a human perspective, it appears very unlikely that Christ's church would have victory in nations and empires so long under the grip of Satan and rank idolatry. But Jesus, the Son of the living God, who was victorious over Satan, sin, and death, and now sits at God's right hand, says, Lo, I am always with you, even to the end of 
God, even to the end of the age. A constant presence, a constant intercession, a constant loving oversight to carry us through all difficulties. Therefore, with Caleb, we must say, we are well able to take the land. Why did the Puritans and the early Presbyterians have such a huge influence, and of course we could include Calvin in that, over Europe and America? Why? Because they were faithful. Because they believed the promises. Because they didn't buy into this negativity, this disbelief. Therefore, with Caleb, we must say we are well able. We are to hardly say amen to our Lord's promise and remind God of it in our prayers. Lord Jesus, remember your words unto your servants. We judge the future not by present sight, but by your promise, by what we cannot see, the future victory. We live in a time when the worst preachers when the most heretical garbage is super popular and is what everybody's following. Solid reform preaching is very unpopular and faithful preachers are usually small. So what? We continue to work hard and look to the future. For it's not always going to be like this. The age, the 1480s and the 1490s, in the early 1500s, right before the Reformation, were the most wicked evil time of the whole Middle Ages. The popes were mafia bosses and they were having people assassinated. Popes were having sex orgies at the Vatican. Literally, sex orgies. Were, and they had children that were paid to run around naked. And people were having sex on the floor in the Vatican. That's what the church was like. And then God raises up Martin Luther and John Calvin and Zwingli and John Knox and we have Reformation. So don't Disbelieve. There's no reason to disbelieve. Look what they did. God can do it again, and he will do it again. Presbyterians used to be post-millennial in their outlook. Uh, Charles Grandison Finney, who's a terrible heretic, he's a fully Pelagian. Uh, his family attended a uh, Presbyterian church in New York, and when the pastor and elders found out they were premillennial, they asked him to go to another church because premillennialism was considered so obviously unscriptural. Presbyterians used to be postmillennial in their outlook. Christians used to teach that civil magistrates should adopt Christianity and a, an explicitly Christian law order. But due to a lack of faith in God's promises, we have eschatologies of defeatism. Premillennialism says that the Great Commission will most certainly fail in history and only Jesus' physical presence with physical coercion ruling from Jerusalem, with bullets and bombs and threats, will establish the kingdom on earth. And they teach the world belongs to Satan. Do not polish brass on a sinking ship. They teach that. I know, I used to be premillennial. And then there are what I call negative amillennialists. They say the kingdom has no effects outside of the church. We're not to worry about society or the world or culture. We're not to disciple whole nations. We're to have our little ghettos. We're head of Christian ghettos. The gospel will fail in history. And the most that we should work for is personal piety. Now, I'm not denying we should work for personal piety. But the Great Commission says to disciple whole nations. That's what it says. 
And if you read the prophecies, I didn't take the time. It would take too much time. But go and read all the post-millennial prophecies. They're very clear. Kings and queens are going to bow the knee to Christ. And they're going to honor the church. Society will always be anti-Christian, they say. So it is foolish and even wrong to try and disciple civil magistrates, institutions, schools, universities, and so on. I have, a, I have a, some Protestant Reformed journals, and there's an article in one of them on eschatology. And it says that it is unbiblical to attempt to Christianize a nation's leaders or a nation's laws. It not only says it's a waste of time and it'll never happen, but it says it's wrong to try to do that. It actually says that. Oh, it detracts from personal piety, we're told. All of this is simply unbelief and disobedience. Christians in America could have had an explicitly Christian nation, an explicitly Christian constitution, but they said no to the Bible, and they said yes to pagan Enlightenment thinkers. Now, they chose John Locke, and they chose people that are considered right-wing Enlightenment thinkers. They're better than the guys in France who are cutting off the heads of Christians <laughs> and worshiping a statue of reason. Yeah, they were better than that, but they were still pagan. John Locke's a pagan. The result is that Christians today are under the civil authority of secular humanists, feminists, sodomites, socialists, transgendered, sex perverts. There is no neutrality. If you don't try to establish a Christian civilization, Christendom, a Christian nation with Christian laws, Christian civil magistrates, Christian voting requirements and so forth, you're going to get the opposite. If you're unfaithful and you don't follow the Bible because you don't believe it's going to happen, which is exactly what happened in, in the days of Caleb, if you don't do, if you don't do that, you're going to get, you're, you're going to have a self-fulfilling prophecy of defeat We pay property taxes to support the established religion of secular humanism. Unbelief leads to disobedience, and disobedience leads to covenant sanctions. Our goal for the effects of the gospel on society must be the same as Christ's goal. And we must not waver one iota, no matter what the external circumstances. And if you don't believe my view of, of the Great Commission, go to my website, reformedonline.com. I have a whole giant article on it. Hopefully it's up there used to be. And then, of course, Ken Gentry has a great book. I don't know if you can get it anymore, but he has The Greatness of the Great Commission by Ken Gentry. He's incredibly good. We have not had victory because of unbelief and disobedience, not because Jesus cannot fulfill his promises. And then fourth, and we'll be real brief here. There's a very personal application from our text that we must always keep in mind. We must imitate Caleb and follow in Christ fully. There are no biblical requirements that are non-essential, that can be ignored. Oh, I'm a Christian, but I like to hang out with pagans. I'm a Christian, but I like to go hang out and smoke weed and do a little coke. Oh, I'm a Christian, but yeah, a little fornication is not going to hurt anything. No, that's not being like Caleb at all. There is no sinful behaviors in our life with which we can make peace. We must diligently seek to follow Jesus with our whole heart. His interest, his kingdom, his law must come first. We must not pervert scripture and come up with clever excuses for disobedience. You know, I was in the RP church for many, many years. I was a minister in the RP church for 
for some years. And, uh, you know, virtually everybody celebrates Christmas. And their argument is, well, it's a secular day. It has nothing to do with Jesus. It's not, a, it's not a religious day. So the regular principle doesn't apply to Christmas. Oh, let me think. It's called the Christ Mass. It's associated with Jesus Christ. But it's a secular day. You call that a good argument? The moment you start speaking of Jesus Christ, it's intrinsically religious. So your argument is either I'm going to deny that Jesus Christ is God and pretend it's a secular day, or I'm going to admit that Jesus is God and the most important person ever born, and uh, I'm going to disobey the regular principle. You can't win that argument. These are times of temptation, and there will be times when the flesh does not want to obey. Read, Paul has the same problem we do. Read Romans chapter 7. I want to do this. I want to obey fully. And I find the flesh, and I end up doing that. In these times, we must promptly, sincerely, and quickly obey whether we really want to or not. Pick up your cross daily. Jay Adams is great on this. Read Jay Adams. I know he writes about counseling a lot, but his stuff applies to sanctification. You got a problem with this? You got to replace it with that. There is no neutrality. It's hard, but we must never make a peace treaty with sin. The Israelites would bicker, murmur, complain against God's word as if it, it was wrong and if it was unreasonable. They would talk themselves into disobedience. We must never do that. Scripture is always right, and if your mind disagrees with Scripture, you're always wrong. So you don't try to justify homosexuality. You don't try to justify premarital sex. You don't try to justify things that are obviously wrong, like taking drugs. Having a beer is not the same thing as dropping a hit of acid or snorting coke. It's not the same thing. They would manifest unbelief, and they would also deny the truth to justify their sin. They brought the curses of the covenant down on their heads, and they died in the wilderness because unbelief always leads to rebellion and disobedience. Let us therefore imitate Caleb and Joshua in their unshakable faith in the word of God. We must imitate their prompt, hearty, immediate obedience to all that God has spoken. The alternative to faith and obedience is disobedience and the curses of the covenant. I like the thing when Jesus is forsaken by all the people because they don't like his doctrine. And he says to his disciples, you're going to forsake me too? No, Lord. Where can we go? You're the, he is the truth. We have the truth. We have the gospel. There is no other alternative. It's either Christ or hell. It's either Christ or Satan. It's either Christ or darkness. Look at the way these pagans live. Look at the cities. Look at the black communities in the ghettos where people, they have to close all the stores because the robberies and, and uh, crime is so high. Lawlessness. They bring a curse upon themselves instead of submitting, bending the knee to Christ and worshiping God and obeying his law. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this example of Caleb and, of course, Joshua. <clears throat> we fall far short of your holy law every day. Bend our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we love your holy word and that we bow, bend our hearts to obey in every area, especially those areas where we're weak, where we struggle.
And when we sin, Lord, forgive us. Cause us to repent, to die daily. To die daily, to repent every day, to confess our sins every day. Let us be like Caleb. Let us be covenantally faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.